continuing our sermon series through the Acts of the Apostles, or really the Acts of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're looking this morning at chapter 13, verses 4 through 12 of chapter 13. Before we read the holy, inerrant, infallible Word of God, let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of His Word. Let's pray together. God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. And amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. And enable us to respond to your abundant mercy and your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. For we pray this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 13, verses 4 through 12, hear now the word of the Lord, it is written. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, that is Saul and Barnabas, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamis, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. After being called by the Holy Spirit and commissioned to foreign missions by the church in Antioch, Saul and Barnabas immediately set out, heading to the west about 16 miles to the nearest port city of Seleucia. And from there, they went downstream on the Orontes River a few miles into the Mediterranean Sea, where they sailed about 60 miles to the island of Cyprus. And this would have been a very natural place for them to begin their missionary journeys. We will remember that Barnabas was from Cyprus, as were several of those who had come to teach and preach in Antioch. So there is a connection to that island. Anyhow, Saul and Barnabas landed at Cyprus at the port city of Salamis. And we, do, we see them do something here that would become a pattern for them. They went first to the synagogues to preach the gospel. 
We're also told that John, that is John Mark, is with them, assisting them. Now, we find Luke giving us some of these details, but also being very, very selective about what he shares with us, not giving us any details about what occurs as they travel around the island proclaiming the gospel. That is until we get to Paphos, which was about 90 miles to the west of Salamis. And it's here that Saul and Barnabas and John Mark encounter a Roman official named Sergius Paulus and his advisor, who goes by two names here, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of salvation, and Elamus, which Luke tells us means magician. And this is what he was, not in the positive sense of the Magi who had come to Bethlehem looking for the Christ child, but in the negative sense, as we will see. He was a Jewish false prophet, a trickster, almost certainly claiming to have powers of divination and or being able to provide to this Roman official some sort of sacred oracle. And these two men, Sergius Paulus and Elamis, represent respectably the opportunity and the opposition that those sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ will encounter in the world. As those who are called to be ambassadors of the gospel and to give witness to it here in our community and throughout the earth, we have lessons to learn from this passage. So first, we find here that there is an opportunity to share the gospel in the world and to find great success. One of the reasons that Luke presents us with this story is that the gospel had found an audience among the poor and downcast. But we see here that it also appealed to those of high status. Here, that is Sergius Paulus, who Luke tells us was a proconsul. And that might not be a position we're very familiar with, so let me give a little background. The island of Cyprus had been occupied for a very long time and had been colonized successively by many different peoples, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Persians. But since the first century BC, it had been under the Roman jurisdiction. And from 22 BC, It had been organized as a senatorial province administered by a proconsul. A proconsul was the administrator of a Roman senatorial province. So he was a provincial governor, as it were. And from other writings of in that period, we know that Sergius Paulus's family was one which rendered distinguished service to the Roman Empire in the first and second centuries. Sergius Paulus then wasn't a simpleton. He came from a prominent family. He was in a position of power. And Luke describes him to us as a man of intelligence. But there was something about the evangelical ministry of Barnabas and Saul there in Paphos which attracted him. And Luke tells us that he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. 
As the story unfolds for us here in these verses, Sergius Paulus not only has the opportunity to hear the gospel proclaimed, but he also has the opportunity to see its power in the judgment that falls upon his advisor, Elamus. We're going to come back to him in just a moment. But for now, we should note that hearing in seeing the power of the gospel resulted in Sergius Paulus placing faith in Jesus Christ through this gospel that Barnabas and Saul proclaimed. We have seen this before in the healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3 of Acts. The proclamation of the gospel is accompanied by a demonstration of its power which leads to conversions. And while we aren't sure about the extent of the impact here, we know in chapter 13, it results in the conversion of this prominent Roman official. And this is significant in a number of ways. Now, certainly there would have been a great excitement surrounding a man of great social and political status converting to Christ, just as there is today when someone of prominence, whether that be a politician or a famous athlete or musician or actor, professes faith in Jesus Christ. It must be acknowledged that these sorts of individuals have wide and strong influence, which allows for potentially a wonderful platform from which to lift up and promote the gospel. But I think Luke's intent here isn't as much to show and celebrate that this man has come to faith because he is of a high status as it is to demonstrate that the gospel is again for all people, Jew and Gentile, poor and rich, powerless and powerful, completely unknown and famous. Luke shares a story because you have here a Gentile who perhaps has many obstacles which could prevent him from coming to faith in Jesus, but who is converted nonetheless by the gospel message. That's something to acknowledge and celebrate regardless of the man's prominence. Jesus tells us that there is will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And this rejoicing occurs not because he is a person of prominence, but because he is a sinner in need of salvation. And he has repented and been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. All of us receive salvation through the same means, no matter our ethnicity, our race, our socioeconomic status. If we are to be saved, then we must humble ourselves before God, repent of our sins, and place faith in Jesus Christ. But the simple lesson is that the gospel message prevails because it is powerful and persuasive to those who have ears to hear it, regardless of who they are. And I think that this is important to note here because I've noticed that there is a tendency in some evangelical circles to spend a great deal of time and energy and attention seeking to attract the rich and famous and powerful. 
And underlying this effort is the belief that the elite of the world, if they were converted, could use their enormous influence over others to produce many more conversions. And whether this is articulated or not, what's being communicated is is that God's mission needs the elite of the world. I think we have to be very, very careful at this point, remembering that God does not depend on worldly wealth, power, or prominence to spread his kingdom. In fact, what God's word declares is that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God's glory is best seen when much is accomplished through that which is considered insignificant by the world. That's not to say that God cannot and does not use those in positions of prominence as a means to accomplish his purposes. It just means that God is not is not reliant on the elite to fulfill his mission in the world. In fact, oftentimes, God ordains to work in just the opposite manner. The bottom line is that the power lies in the gospel, not in the person sharing it. And notice here that Luke doesn't tell us that any others are converted as a result of this Roman official's conversion. Further evidence that that isn't the point here. The point isn't how his conversion impacts others. It is simply that he alone is converted. Every conversion is significant in and of itself. And certainly someone who was a Gentile and had every reason not to convert would be significant. But our efforts to convert those of high status are not because of their high status but because God calls us to share the gospel with all people. There's a ditch on the other side as well, though. While some are catering almost exclusively to the elite of the world, there are others who proclaim that the gospel is really for the financially poor and socially downcast. And this is said to the exclusion of all others. Simply not the picture that we receive in Scripture, though. The gospel is for everyone and can be received by anyone who is poor in spirit and humble in heart, regardless of financial or social status. And here, I believe, is the message of Acts. We should desire the conversion of all peoples, regardless of position or status or influence. And we should work towards that end, which means that we should never focus on one group to the neglect of another, believing that somehow one group is more important or worthy of the gospel message. We don't neglect to tell the powerful and prominent, nor do we neglect to tell the poor and obscure. Among all these, God has chosen his people. And there will be those who are eager to hear the gospel message and ready to respond by placing faith in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. There should be no favoritism then. In fact, God's word forbids favoritism in his church. The church is a place where we should see a spirit-formed community filled with a diversity of people who have been brought together as one body, humbled before the cross of Jesus Christ, called to worship and serve God according to his purposes. We should seek to spread the gospel then as broadly as possible. 
and Saul and Barnabas serve as examples of not limiting the proclamation of the gospel in this way. They don't hesitate to move between places where they can reach Jews and places where they can reach Gentiles with the gospel. And we'll see this in the coming missionary journeys. Anywhere that they can find an audience, anywhere, whether that be a synagogue, a marketplace, beside a river, in the halls of academia, or before rulers, there's a commitment not to miss opportunities to preach the gospel, knowing that the Lord will draw people to himself according to his purposes through their ministry. And I think this is an aspect of this comment that Luke seems to make in passing in verse 9, that Saul was also called Paul. It's been frequently said that Saul changed his name on account of his conversion, that he was transformed from Saul to Paul in his Christian transformation. But that really wasn't the case. Saul did not become Paul at his conversion. Saul becomes Paul on account of his Gentile missions. As a Jew, Saul would have probably proudly bore the name of Israel's first king, who, like him, was from the tribe of Benjamin. But as a Roman citizen, he would have had three names. And inscriptions have shown that for Jews who were Roman citizens, often their third name would sound like their Jewish name. And this was the case for Saul, who now goes by this Roman name as he enters into this Gentile phase of ministry. Saul gives up his Jewish name in favor of his Roman name, Paulos, which, by the way, means little. And perhaps here in Paphos, this was a way for him to relate to Sergius Paulus. Again, they sought opportunities to share the gospel. They took any advantage they could. Paul will later say that he will become all things to all people. In his letter to the Corinthians, he writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is a single-hearted devotion and passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how about you? Do you look for opportunities? Do you seek to use any advantage to share the gospel message? Do you spread the gospel message broadly, showing no favoritism in who you share it with? And do you understand that it isn't simply a message to be shared verbally, but one to be demonstrated in power by how we live our lives? I pray we will consider these things and seek to truly be evangelicals those who are eager to share 
the good news of the gospel, believing that in it lies the power of God to save. And even while we see here that taking opportunities to proclaim the gospel produces positive outcomes and conversions, we see that the proclamation of the gospel also stirs opposition. Even as Sergius Paulus is eager to hear it, Elamus sees it as a threat to his power and influence. And this text indicates that Elamus was serving as a sort of sorcerer to Sergius Paulus and providing him with divinations which would not have been uncommon in this time period. Leaders wanted to have the ability to see into the future and to affect it. And this would have placed Elamus into a very lucrative position. It gave him a sort of power over this Roman official. But all of this was threatened by the gospel. If Sergius Paulus converted to Jesus Christ, it would put an end to Elamus's manipulation. A true conversion to Christ has the power to do that, to disrupt relationships, to bring a point of conflict in unhealthy and ungodly relationships, to call into question the terms of these sorts of relationships, to unhinge power structures, to destroy the strongholds of the devil, and to bring down the occult. And those who are benefiting from a relationship of abuse or oppression will always bring opposition to the gospel at this point. Really, any who love darkness and hate the Lord in his kingdom will oppose the proclamation of the gospel. And here is the reality. Because of its very nature, because it calls hearers to turn away from darkness and submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the gospel inevitably produces conflict as the forces of darkness are revealed and attacked. And as they are threatened, they will respond. The evil one doesn't back down easily. He doesn't simply relent. He doesn't hand over what he has declared to be his. But this also means for us that there will almost always be a battle to be fought whenever we follow the call of Jesus Christ to go forth into the world. And we see here that Saul and Barnabas are immediately met with resistance. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Jesus told his disciples to expect this. The apostles told the church to expect this. Peter exhorts us, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. So we mustn't go about believing that if we are doing something that the Lord has called us to, that life will be easy. Life doesn't become a cakewalk simply because we are following Jesus. In fact, since the world is against God, Living for him will inherently bring opposition and hatred. But it isn't just a matter of expecting this opposition to come. It's making right now a commitment to stand firm in the face of it and to not back down when it does come. And this means that we must be prepared to pay the cost for sincere service to Jesus should it be demanded of us. And that probably will never mean for us dying for our faith, but it could, it very well could, have social and or financial repercussions. So each of us has a choice. And I think that R. Kent Hughes lays it out nicely. 
never share your faith, and you will never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue, and you will never be rejected. Never walk out of a theater because a movie or a play is spiritually offensive, and you will never be called a prig. Never practice consistent honesty in business, and you will never lose the trade of a not-so-honest associate. Never reach out to the needy, and you will never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart, and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus, and you will never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. We can choose to be comfortable. We can choose the convenient. We can choose to never share the gospel or to only share the gospel in what we consider safe environments, ones that create no controversy. But that means denying the calling of our Lord. It means turning our back on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we won't ever waver in that regard. I pray that we would seek to be bold in our proclamation, to stand firm in our conviction, and be willing to suffer the consequences. But this passage also hopefully gives us some encouragement. What we find here is that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we have a mighty power on our side. And this means that Elamus finds himself up against one that he had not anticipated. He thought he was standing up to Saul and Barnabas. Instead, he finds himself standing toe-to-toe against the Holy Spirit who filled these men and empowered them. And there was no way that Elamus was going to come out on top of that battle. In this instance, there was swift repercussions. At this most critical point, the gospel would not be thwarted by the evil one. Paul with the Holy Spirit speaking through him, cursed Elamus. He called him out for what he was, a son of the devil, which is a clear play on his name, Bar-Jesus. He was not a son of Jesus. Far from it, he was a son of Satan. Elamus was an enemy of God, and Paul was not afraid to say so. And this might seem like a really harsh thing in our age of tolerance, in our age of to each his own. But we mustn't pretend that all ideologies are equally valid. And that doesn't mean that I'm advocating for a lack of civility in our public discourse, but I do think that there are points at which we are tempted to soft-pedal the truths of the gospel. As one biblical scholar comments, we should view the gospel we preach as holding the key to eternal salvation. And so, if a father sees a man trying to peddle heroin to his little son, he will not seek to enter a discussion with the man on the merits and demerits of heroin or politely request him to stop doing that. He will take urgent and decisive action. And if such drastic action is taken for temporal problems... Well, how about a problem that has dire consequences for all eternity? One who loves humanity will not calmly stand by when he or she sees the eternal salvation of a person for whom Christ died jeopardized through the deception of a false teacher. 
And I wish it weren't true, but I have personally witnessed a Christian leader give a platform within the church nonetheless to a false teacher promoting dangerous and heretically heretical but culturally popular ideas in the name of exchanging ideas and having religious debate among fellow believers. Dearly beloved, this is nonsense. We are commanded to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. This means that we shouldn't be afraid to speak up on behalf of the truth of the gospel to the exclusion of all other ideologies. There shouldn't be any who are enemies of righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, who are making, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, who are not confronted directly. And we see Paul speaking with boldness here. Elamus is called out and cursed, and the judgment comes swiftly upon him, who was guilty of seeking to pervert what Saul and Barnabas had sought to convert. But we should notice the form of this judgment. He is cursed with blindness, but only for a limited period of time. This is what verse 11 tells us. And so it seems that this was meant as a temporary form of discipline that served as a warning, carrying with it the hope of repentance and faith. Elamus is struck with a physical condition that symbolized his spiritual condition. And while we don't know if Elamus came to Christ as a result of this encounter, we do see that the gospel will ultimately prevail over the powers of darkness. Now, I don't think that that means that we should have an expectation from this one instance that we can or should call down curses from heaven upon people. It's not what we are to take from this. But we can have confidence knowing that all those who stand in opposition to the gospel are already cursed and will eventually face God's judgment. And the greatest thing that could happen to them is that they would be disciplined by God in a way that might bring about repentance and faith in them before they meet his wrath at the day of judgment. So there will be opposition to the gospel. But there will also be great opportunity. Dearly beloved, Scripture tells us that the fields are ripe for harvest. The Lord has prepared those he has chosen from all peoples to hear the gospel and respond in faith, and he calls us to be his workers who are willing to go into those mission fields proclaiming the gospel. And lest we forget, the communication of the message of salvation is the main activity of Christian missions. In the weeks to come as we move through Acts, I challenge you to pay attention to the frequency of the references to the word of God. This is what's being proclaimed. We see it here, and we will continue to see it. But we need this reminder in a day when specialist short-term work, humanitarian relief, and support services are all being called missions, and rightly so. But the church should never lose its primary and most important focus, the explicit proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us set ourselves to this task with great urgency. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, which has saved us from our sins, redeemed us from the pit, made us to be your beloved children.
And we thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you have ordained to use us as your vessels, imperfect and frail though we may be, to spread the fragrance of Christ throughout all the earth. So give to us courage and boldness to proclaim the gospel, to stand firm in the faith, to suffer on account of exalting our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of 